CBD FX's CBD products are formulated to boost overall wellness and deliver calm vibes for daytime and nighttime use. CBD FX uses only organically grown hemp and all natural ingredients. CBD FX's best selling line of CBD products features wellness boosting CBD and legal Delta 9 THC gummies, oil tinctures, capsules, pens, and other products. Visit CBDFX.com today and use code Genius to get 25% off site wide plus a free CBD bath bomb with your first purchase. The code is GENIUS, G-E-N-I-U-S. Don't miss this special 25% off offer for Finding Genius listeners, only at cbdfx.com. Offer expires August 31st, 2023. Feel the difference with CBDFX. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast and the Surviving Hard Times Podcast. I have uh, Glenn Luffridge. He's a director, campus dining and concessions at Auburn University. And we had, you know, how they produce and acquire local fresh food to feed to the Auburn people. You know, some of the issues surrounding that. So, Glenn, thanks for coming. Thank you for having me. Looking forward to having a chat. Well, excellent. Tell me a bit about your background and how you came into the position you're in, and then we'll kind of go from there. So kind of came kind of a roundabout way. I did graduate from Auburn University. Um, obviously, wanted to come back. My wife and I it, it always kind of plotted that way. I did own, you can see, you can see uh, my kid's picture there on a fishing boat. I did a commercial seafood business in Florida that I worked in for, for a few years. Yeah, stone crabs and grouper fished, and my brother's still in it. And so that was something I did for a long time and actually got into uh, management recruiting for restaurant managers. And I, I got to know uh, some of the contractors that work business. And, and so when Albert had an opening managing a contractor, uh, that seemed like a good opportunity for me. And that's kind of how I got here. Um, if you don't mind, can we talk for a few minutes about the seafood business? I never met anyone that was in it, so it might be interesting. Absolutely. Love to. Okay. Yeah. Well, what kind of things came up uh, there? Like, would you do uh, fishing charters or would you go out and fish yourself and provide, you know, a catch to restaurants or other places? What was it like? The latter. So we did, we were kind of in distribution, so to speak. Uh, so we, we would catch it and then get it to restaurants. We did not sell, we didn't have a retail location. Uh, my brother and I had about, uh, at one point we had five boats. Uh, we had 10,000 stone crab traps. And then we had a commercial license for to catch bottom fish like grouper and, and snapper and things like that. And so uh, my brother and I would fish together in the summers. We had a captain for some of the other boats, but that was a lot of fun um, from that perspective until, until I had young kids and uh, you're being gone for seven days is, is not conducive to uh, marriage and children. I can say that it's a little tough. Oh, so, so what would happen in order to fill the boat and make it worth it? You'd have to be at sea literally for days at a time. Yes. I mean, it, it costs quite a bit. I mean, you know, just, I mean, between fuel, you got to put 5,000 pounds of ice in the boat um, to really make it worth it. You know, you wanted to bring home, you know, a couple thousand pounds of fish. And so we would do hook and line fishing. We felt like that was 
Uh, we could be selective about the catch that way. There are other methods of fishing that are a little le- quite a bit less selective, to say the least. We could release fish that didn't meet size limits, things like that. And so we, we were able to harvest, uh, you know, like I said, grouper and snapper, and we can, you know, move around different depths depending on the time of year. But most of the time we were fishing over the summers because uh, the commercial stone crab season for Florida, which is a, is a huge market in Florida, is from October 15th until May 15th. So that period of time we were typically crabbing. Well, for getting crabs, what are some of the methods that you can use to get them? And, you know, how does each work? So it's interesting. Stone crabs are actually a renewable fishery because you don't keep the whole crab. We actually broke the claw off the crab. Um, Sometimes you'd be able to rake too because we were commercial. A lot of the ones that even when we broke both claws, they would jump back up. They would climb back in our traps and and eat our bait then. But they they are able to regenerate their claws up to four times in their lifetime. You have to train your crew to break the claws correctly to make sure they release it and it doesn't tear off and but that's, I mean, you know, we, we definitely did a lot of that. <laughs> it's a small trap, 14 by 14 with a concrete bottom. They can be wood or plastic. They have a rope attached and you have 10,000 of them. So they're not run together. Some people put them together and what we call long line them, but we typically just would go with individual traps and you just go, you would pull a line of say 150 to 200 traps. You have two winches on the back end. If you've seen Deadliest Catch, you know, they throw that grappling hook we had long poles because we didn't have as big a boat uh, so we had about a 10 foot long what we called a hook pole you'd grab the line throw it in the winch reel it up and then you'd have uh, your, your crew would be clearing the trap of crabs sorting anything that was too small we'd go back over the side everything that met would be harvested and then you throw the crab back and then bait the trap and push it over the side how, how often would you uh, go look in the traps to see what was in there So you'd want to see them once a week, sometimes twice a week if it was really, really hot. You know, if a storm hit, it's interesting. Uh, The crabs like to crawl around when when the water's really murky because most of the things that eat them are sight predators. So, you know, your grouper and snapper and other fish like that, trigger fish, they typically will predate a crab so they, they don't like to be moving around when especially at night when the other fish can see them so they like it when it's uh, the water's about like chocolate milk really stirred up so when it's when it would storm we'd want to go out there and get our traps baited because we knew the crabs would be crawling around hey yeah it's tough how would you know if uh, how many times a crab's claw has been broken like can you tell if someone's broken that was before? actually no, there's no way to tell. The, um, the University of Florida did the research on that. I'm just citing their uh, <laughs> their research that they can do it up to four times. That was what I heard and, and read, but that was not a, nothing I could prove. Like, I mean, I think they actually did it in a lab. Well, could you like, I don't know, get a dot of some kind of marker, like, you know, pull off the claw, go dot, you know, on the <laughs> arm that's left and then throw them back. And then if it stays, maybe you'd know like, oh, there's three dots this is the last one. Take the whole thing. Well, the whole thing, uh, they're not really edible. There's not a lot of meat in the main part of the crab, so it doesn't make any sense to take the whole crab. But as far as uh, marking them, because crabs molt, it's hard to keep a mark on them because they're going to, when they grow, they uh, get that whole skin or that, that shell. Yeah. And they, then the, their outer skin hardens up again. Wait, um, for the grouper and the other fish, could you take like just a shell of a crab and tie it to like fishing line and have it dragged along with the lion so that the no fish you cannot that would crab. be a, that'd be a good way to get this deep water with the state of florida stone crabs were, were definitely something that's a major industry in the state joe stone crabs you know famous they're all the way out in las vegas 
Um, so there's there's quite a few restaurants that serve them in the state. And so they're really, they don't want you to have short crabs. They don't want you to have whole crabs. So they they definitely watch that pretty closely. Yeah, but I mean, if there's going to be some that don't make it that die and get caught and all that stuff. Like, I don't know, is, is there any way to, are you saying the system would be abused? Like, why couldn't you say, hey, you know, 1% of the crabs, they don't make it. So can we tie the shells to the nets and use it as a bait? I, you know, I mean, I, th- I think it, it might be possible. I don't know how, you know, like I said, logistically, when you're going through thousands of crabs a day, I mean, just just the trying to mark them, trying to do something like that. I think the bet, you know, obviously it would be great if we could get uh, you get another use out of the ones that we know aren't going to make it. But I, I think practically when you're dealing with that many claws, you know, what we, we, you know, opening season, we'd catch a thousand pounds. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's a lot of crabs. CBD effects, full spectrum and broad spectrum CBD products are formulated to boost overall wellness and deliver calm vibes for daytime and nighttime use. CBD FX is offering our listeners an exclusive 25% off, which I think is very generous, plus a free CBD bath bomb with your first purchase when you use the code GENIUS. Don't miss this special 25% off offer for Finding Genius listeners only at CBDFX.com. Offer expires August 31st, 2023. Feel the difference with CBD FX. Did you ever tell your kids that you uh, you caught Mr. Krabs or you had a Krabby Patty formula? They watch SpongeBob? <laughs> You know, we didn't watch a lot of SpongeBob, but um, yes, I'm sure that they would have found that hilarious if I caught the. I used to tell them stories about, you know, about the crabs because stone crabs are, you know, they kind of face the world with their claws out. They're not a friendly animal. One of the stories I would tell them was really about cooperation because, you know, one of the things that eat stone crabs is octopus. And so if an octopus gets in a trap, you've got, you know, maybe 10 or 12 stone crabs that can crush clams with their claws. I mean, they they could probably really put a hurting on an octopus, but because they're used to being on their own, they all go in a corner and they kind of huddle up and try to hide. And so the octopus just kind of wanders around in there with impunity and eats the crabs. If they all ganged up on the octopus and, and cooperated, they wouldn't get eaten. That's, mm. you know, that's kind of the life lesson there. Well, at the end of the season, I would think that would be when you have the most crabs with no claws anymore. And the, and the octopuses would go crazy. So maybe it'd be a good time to octopus fish a week or two after the season ends because they'd be fat and happy and it might be a lot of them. It was interesting. So the octopus typically would push them inshore about the middle. When, when the water started getting cold, the octopus would push them from offshore towards the inshore. And so you'd want, the, the trick was to get traps ahead of the, the octopus, kind of pushing them inshore because that you get a big bunch of crabs that way but towards the end of the season that octopus have already gone back offshore it's just one of those vagaries of of the way it worked so we didn't see a lot of octopus in the spring we saw them all with them before christmas most of the time okay gotcha well i guess all right so transitioning to your current work at auburn university like what are your job duties and what do you do and you know ask some questions around that if that's okay Sure, absolutely. You know, the main thing I do is kind of the advocate between the university and our, our contractor. We have Aramark is our current food service provider. So we have 38 locations on campus that include food trucks, dining halls, you know, coffee shops, all of the above. And then we have concessions and all of our athletic venues. So those those are my primary duties. The, the things I do every day is just make sure that we're, that we're meeting the contract um, from both sides, that when there are 
opportunities for us to get better, let's say, that I'm communicating those and that we're establishing good a good understanding of what we expect every day, right? I mean, I think that's an important thing. I, they, you got to know where the wins are. Um, it's it's hard enough. I mean, food service, you know, I like to say we do 22,000 transactions a day. There's an opportunity for us to to mess up at least one of those every day. And so we're going to we're gonna have those and, and we have to know that, but we also can react and try to not have the same ones over and over again. Well, what does that mean? What do you, what do you mean mess up? You're, you're out of something or supply chain, you, you didn't order enough or what does mess up mean? Oh, well, I mean, just, it could be a customer service issue. You know, the ketchup could have been out in the dining hall. Those are things that that make people, you know, upset. I mean, you know, you're going to get a call from someone that didn't have the optimal experience, right? Could be they got a, a chicken sandwich that wasn't as hot as they wanted. It could be that something, you know, they ordered, you know, a coffee drink that wasn't made to their specifications. Those are all opportunities that can happen on any given day. And that, that can happen in any restaurant. It's just how you respond and, and how do we, you know, value each customer equally. Well, what did you notice about the ebb and flow of, you know, what did people eat preferentially at different times? And, you know, when did that change and how did it change? Like, did they eat more burgers in the summer and then in the winter they ate more soups or, you know, did you, you know, guys I, them what you guys thought you wanted? I, you know, I think that what I find interesting is the way tastes evolve with, you know, we have uh, obviously freshman, sophomore, junior, senior. Um, so, you know, your freshman year, um, they do, they, they like to eat Chick-fil-A quite a bit. They eat a lot of chicken. So fried foods, familiar uh, favorites, pizza, things like tend to, tend to be more freshman fare. And as they grow older, our food trucks are most popular with our uh, juniors and seniors. And it's a little, you know, it's usually something that's, um, you know, we have a local restaurant that has a, a food truck that has a, a crab cake sandwich, you know, a very popular turkey wrap. We have a, a food truck that serves, uh, has gyros and, and Mediterranean style food. We have one that has Indian food. Uh, we have one that has, uh, you know, Asian noodle type uh, fare. So the, you know, it's those types of things. I think that uh, students taste evolve they try new things. They eat sushi more often, um, things like that. So I think that's that's pretty interesting to me, the way that their tastes tend to evolve over time. What about uh, supply chain issues? Have you had any or have you not noticed that? You know, in No, we definitely have had them. There's definitely been quite a few supply chain issues. I mean, typically you're, you'll set your menu and then and then you'll adjust your menu based on what you actually got on the truck versus what you ordered. You know, we, mm. we've had a pretty good run of getting about 85% of what we ordered. Um, and so you can, you know, add to uh, things that are available um, to kind of get through. But, you know, we've had some, we've had a couple of, t- a couple of days where I've seen uh, uh, several of the same protein on the same, on, on the menu. You typically like to mix it up a little bit, but sometimes, hey, we got a lot of pork loin, but we didn't get chicken this time. So we, mm. we're going to have a couple of different pork loin uh, type dishes. And so that's, you know, and that's, and that's part of it. Everyone's having to adjust to supply chain at this point. Yeah. Okay. Um, Any other interesting phenomena you observed, you know, uh, you know, that the, I guess the public or the students don't see, like, what are some of the big challenges you face with providing, you know, enough food, the right food, a good experience, et cetera? Absolutely. I mean, I think some of the, you know, labor has been a big challenge. I think that it's interesting to see how people you know, think people want to deal with people anymore, which is not a, which is not a good thing. I think that we have a very demanding consumer in this day and age. And every restaurant that I, I currently know is having trouble with 
getting enough staff. And so it's, mm-hmm. it's a tough job. It's one that comes with um, demands. And from a time standpoint, it's not necessarily the highest paying job all the time, although it's gotten better. But I mean, I think okay. that there's, you know, with, with, the, with the economy the way it is, as far as there's plenty of jobs um, out there. So people are making different choices. Uh, I think hospitality is one of those things that you really has got to be in your blood a little bit. Uh, you got to enjoy seeing people smile when they eat the food that you've prepared and they've had a great experience knowing that kind of fuels you. And so I think, you know, one of the things that we're really concentrating on right now is technology. There, there are incredible ovens and things like that that allow us to utilize staff in different ways where recipes are already programmed into the machine, you know, into the oven so that uh, we can get optimal food out with less um, culinary talent. And because uh, you know, it's one of those things, it's hard to find a good sous chef right now. They're in high demand. Uh, so you typically will have an executive chef and we'll have cooks. And so um, it's you've got the really at the very top of the food chain and then you've got kind of entry level. So it's it's important to be able to use that technology to kind of elevate your cuisine without having to um, have the without having the body. Because, again, we've typically had sous chefs. They've kind of been that midpoint where they're doing a lot of teaching along the line, helping cooks understand what we're trying to get out of each dish. And now um, you, you just don't have those folks. And so I, I think it's really helped us to, to, to utilize technology. Are there different levels of, of food that you can order, you know, from the company, like grade A strawberries versus like grade B or, you know, well, I'm I mean, sure there's all kinds of jokes like grade D, like fit for human consumption. <laughs> <laughs> well, grade D is not going to go over here. We, we do yeah. specify uh, that, that we do want grade A foods. You know, for us, you know, one of the reasons we got into growing some of our own food, obviously it's a student desire was first and foremost that they wanted healthier, locally grown options. And so I found that it was very expensive a lot of times to, you know, to get to some of those foods. And so there's a real balance point that we have to have on a college campus. We have affluent students who can afford to eat organic and can have anything they want on a given day. But we also have students that have to, every penny counts. You know, if, if things are too expensive, it means they're not going to eat as much and we don't want. Them. And so we, we try to find the balance there. And the dining hall is a good place to do that. We have dining plans that are all access that allow a student to eat all of their meals with us. And so we want to make sure that we're exposing them to things that are healthy and, and, and hopefully that they find really interesting. And, and again, that's one of those things where we started growing our own produce to, to try to take advantage of that, to, to give students an experience that maybe they can't have somewhere else. Uh, we grow lettuce on campus and we harvest it and we bring it to dining hall that day. Um, it's very hard to eat lettuce that was harvested the same day. I mean, I can tell you, unless you live in Yuma, Arizona, uh, <laughs> it would be hard to have access to it. I mean, that most of most of the lettuce is, that's grown and for this country is grown in, in Arizona, California and Mexico. And so for Alabama, we're going to, you know, it's probably going to be seven days. Doesn't mean it's bad. just means it's seven days old. And so um, our shelf life is better, things like that. Really, it really helps with those things. Tomatoes are another one. We we have tomatoes that we're growing in our aquaponic system that I'll put up against anything. I mean, they are amazing tomatoes. They taste great. And we want students to have that experience because hopefully that's going to create in them a preference for local food, for food that was allowed to vine ripen, things like that. So that's always been something that's really important. 
Yeah, how are people reacting to the uh, the stuff that you grow? Like, so you grow lettuce, and what else do you grow? Uh, we grow tomatoes, um, peppers, and, and and again, we're we're working with the horticulture students and faculty. So sometimes we, you know, we've we've grown quite a few cucumbers in the past. We grow, like I said, peppers and tomatoes. We pinos. We do romaine lettuce. We do a lot of leafy greens. We have a um, we have some uh, vertical farms called freight farms that we're growing a lot of our leafy greens out of. That gives us a that's controlled environment, allows us to get exactly what we want on a given week. So we we it's very predictable. Um, you know, as as long as the power doesn't go out, we've got, you know, 150 pounds of spring mix every Monday. Now they eat it by Wednesday, but it's it's something that we can expect and we can feature and students really love it. Yeah. Well what does that do to the to the food you guys provide? So it's a mixture of what you guys grow and then what you guys buy off the trucks. Um, yes. Have you found like what, you know, what combination is, is enough to make the food, I don't know, stand out and be perceived as far better than, than just getting stuff off the truck only. Right. Um, you know, we, we do some branding and, you know, we, we like to, you know, point that out, let, let people taste it. I mean, I think that they can taste a difference. I mean, it's very tender. Um, obviously the nutritional value. I mean, my understanding is that you can lose up to 50% of the nutrition in lettuce each day after it's been harvested. Um, that's, that's something that's been cited to me. And so that just, just thinking about it in those terms, even if you taste, take taste out of the equation, um, the fact that you're going to get so much more nutrition out of something that was harvested quickly like that. You know, I think there is a opportunity for us to do a better job of, you know, we, we, we're working on a branding effort now, and that is kind of the soup to nuts approach about food on campus from where we grow it, uh, where we serve it. What do we do with food that's left over? So we do have food um, each day that we over prepare and it's in, it's perfectly good food, never got served. Um, and we are able to recover that with a, uh, we have a food recovery network on campus that we built a space for, uh, they're called campus kitchens. And so they recover up, to, they've recovered 50,000 pounds of food in a year, um, from us and from some, from some other local restaurants. And what, they, what do you mean recover? Like they, they resell it? Well, they don't sell it. No, sir. Uh, they, they actually do donate it to, mm. to folks that are food insecure. So what we do is we freeze it. Uh, we have blast chillers. So Typically, this would be something that was in a hot box, ready to go out on a line, because we have to be ahead. Because you know, if you get a hundred students that come, you know, at eight, 8 p.m., you got to be able to feed them. And so we've got some things that get prepared ahead of time to be able to serve it's fresh food made that day every day. We don't, you know, we don't hold it over for the next day. So that food uh, typically would have been wasted. Uh, but we are able to take that, put it into a blast chiller, bring the temperature down quickly uh, to make it safe. It, it then uh, is transferred over to campus kitchens. Those students, it's all student led. Uh, they pick it up from our dining hall. They take it uh, over to their space and they put they have a walk in freezer in their space on, here on campus. And then they'll divide that out into and, and portion it out into into meals. And then uh, they serve it to students who are here on campus. Uh, if they need it, or if, uh, they they serve quite a few meals in the community as well. So what's um what's it like at other schools? I don't know if you converse with you know the same person in your position at other universities. Like, is there a big variation in how universities do what you do, or you, you know do you feel like you're leading the way, or you're learning you know techniques from other places? So the, I mean, we have the number one chapter of of uh, yeah, I would say of 
you know, Campus Kitchen for sure. It was a national organization, is not not one anymore. Um, I do know that there are other food recovery networks. Um, and I have to say that, you know, I, I wasn't the one that created it. I'm just a big supporter and, and a big fan of these students who do uh, such amazing work. I, you know, there, there are different, different schools handle food in different ways. I'm not sure how many of them have food recovery networks. I knew that there, there are a few. Uh, University of Kentucky definitely comes to mind. They have a great program and uh, really prize sustainability as far as local sourcing, as well as uh, making sure that they have um, a place on campus where students can get inexpensive meals. They've got a great program for that. So uh, different mm-hmm. folks handle it different ways. For us, Campus Kitchens has been just an amazing student organization. Uh, one of my favorite stories is they do serve, uh, there's a local um, you know, retirement community uh, for, for folks that need assisted living care. Um, our students will actually go and they'll warm food up and take it there and eat with the residents. And what they found is it's created such a community because the the residents would typically take their uh, meals in their room until they knew they could come down and see kids that look like their grandkids. And they come down and meet college students. And by doing that, they met their neighbors and began kind of a process where community got built in because they, they started seeing other people, they started making friends. And so it was a really big deal what they did, but it really speaks to how food and community are so inextricably linked. Yeah, no, that's really cool that it did that. Interesting. Do any of the students want, I mean, you know, I don't, I don't think Auburn operates, let's say necessarily a, you know, culinary school, but do they? Are you able to use the food department to, you know, for students that are interested in culinary arts to train them and stuff like that? We have, we actually have just finished building culinary school that's uh, literally across the street from us. It's attached. So we have an excellent hotel restaurant management program um, that is, and, and we now have a world class facility um, that I would put up against anybody's. Uh, so we, we have our first class this year. And that is definitely something uh, that we're excited about is the opportunities to partner going forward. Uh, really, the, the, the students that are a lot of the students that are in campus kitchens are um, pre-med students. Um, They need service hours, and it's been a great way for them to get service hours with something that really touches um, the public, but there's lots of other students that are uh, involved as well. Yeah, that's really cool. There's a lot of things you can do with this that you are doing. It's really great. Absolutely. I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, sorry. What, What areas do you think still need improvement or need to be pushed forward and how? So for us, I mean, I think, you know, we're, we're struggling with composting a little bit. The, just currently, Auburn is pretty landlocked and we, you know, the, and property values are very high. So finding a, a large tract of land where we could do composting um, has kind of been, you know, a difficult situation. Um, the other thing is that not, there's not many people that want to own composting, if, if, if I want to be blunt. Um, it's a difficult, uh, nobody wants to deal with, you know, post-consumer waste, things like that. So we've kind of identified a, a system we'd like to implement. We're working with our facilities folks um, on campus to find a site where we can have an end-to-end composter. And that's definitely something we want to invest in because I feel like that kind of um, creates that perfect circle where we would be able to bring back food that is would have been waste and can be composted and then turned into soil. And then, you know, we'd be able to use that uh, to grow more food. I mean, that's that's kind of the point, right? Uh, to be able to return. Well, what is, is composting perceived as like a low level job or what's, why is are people not attracted to it at all? Well, I mean, it just, 
it's expensive to do when you have, when you don't have a place, you know what I'm saying? So like if we had a program, you know, if we had a, and we do have agronomy and soils, uh, we are land grant university, but we've, you know, a lot of our folks have have concentrated on other um, endeavors. Let's say, I mean, we don't have a researcher that was really focused on it. And that's really what I've been fortunate with, with horticulture Um, controlled environment uh, was very uh, interesting to, especially Dr. Wells, and then obviously uh, Dr. Lane as well that, that are here on campus that uh, they're they're interested in that and going forward with it and, and bringing that to the state of Alabama. So uh, when you have researchers that are interested in a subject, then you have you know kind of folks that want to partner with you. Uh, we just haven't found that partner yet. Uh, we we can bring uh, some funding to the table for it, but it's just one of those things where it really I, I can't own that. I've got I've got a big job as it is, I, and, and it's not something yeah. I can own myself. Yeah, I understand. There's only so much you can do, but it sounds like you're doing a lot. Recovering fifty thousand pounds of food each year is is tremendous. That's that's really really cool. Yeah, it's been something we, we we've been very proud of, um, and and really again, it's it's prizing food as a resource. I think it's the most sustainable thing we can do is to recover food and feed those who are hungry. I think it's really critical. Yeah. So, um, again, where where is the program headed? Anything new that you're working on that is going to be rolled out soon, or well, something we are, well, something we are working on right now is we've been doing some research, and what we've linked is the. Average transactions a student has on campus in their final GPA. And what we did was we took and we found that if you graph it, um, that students who have a lower GPA typically have lower transactions on campus and students with a higher GPA have more transactions. And that really is not so much that eating makes you smarter, because I would love that to be true because I'd be a genius. I eat here all the time. the (laughs) The problem is. Or, or, or I guess the opportunity is more time spent here. Everything that we have that that's focused on student success, um, the community that we can build here, all of those things, they all reside on campus. And once you get home to your apartment or somewhere across the street, you're, you're more than likely going to be tempted by, you know, the potential 12 pack in your fridge or whatever else, your, your, your Xbox you know, Instagram or, 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 or TikTok, whatever that is, it just makes it hard to come back maybe in the afternoon or, or to focus mm. the way you need to, to succeed. And so it's really um, what, what I like to think of us as is an incentive for students to spend more time here. And so that's really where my focus is, is, is how do we continually create spaces that students want to be in? And if we can do that, um, whether that's with food, Um, whether it's a coffee shop, whatever that is, if it's a space they want to hang out in, we're actually helping them succeed academically. Uh, We've actually gone back four years now and looked at a four-year trend. And there's about a 30, I think it was 38% difference between, say, a 2.0 student and a 4.0 student Mm -hmm. and and how many transactions that they had actually on campus. So it's, again, it's not Mm -hmm. a function of, you know, eating here. It is a function of being here. What about, um, I don't know if this would be counterproductive, but what if you did like an internal DoorDash type service where students could sign up and you deliver it to their dorm rooms or at night you deliver, you know, again, they maybe pay a little extra, but the students that could afford it, maybe that would help save them time and et cetera, or maybe it would backfire. I don't know. Well, I mean, I think it's it's interesting. It's one of those, that's a question that comes up a lot for me is, is that, you know, how far do we want to go to make it convenient or do we really want them to come down from their room and go eat dinner with 
their peers. You know, I mean, I think you have to be careful. So like, you know, a late night food service. Absolutely. I think that's, that's a great opportunity for us. Um, If we can, you know, uh, staffing, it might be problematic at the moment, but if we could get there, I'd love it. I'd love to be able from say 9 PM on till say two in the morning, be able to deliver food to students. That'd be great and safe. Um, But really for dinner, we really want them to come down and, and eat community. I mean, I think we we feel like that's such an important part of of your growth, of getting to know your peers, of connecting to Auburn. Um, our student experience is excellent. Uh, we've been rated, I think, in in 2021, we were rated by the Princeton Review as the happiest students, uh, which is a great thing to have uh, as far as if you're gonna if you're gonna have a, a claim to fame. Uh, having happy students is not a bad one. Uh, yeah. So. You know, and and so so that's kind of one of those things. We really want them to get this opportunity that they have to to get to know each other, to spend time, and to really get that Auburn experience that we feel like is really high value. No, that makes a lot of sense. Well, very good. Well, what's the best way for people to find out more about uh, the program you're working on? You know, maybe they're from another university, student or faculty, and to learn from you guys as well, to what sure. you're uh, what you're doing. Well, we're at Auburn dot edu slash dining so you can you can go to our website there you can email dining at auburn.edu you can get my email from that but happy to talk to anybody about anything that they heard and, and would be interested in learning more about okay well very good well thanks for coming on the podcast and uh like you said you have a very interesting background so there's a lot of great material we covered and, and again thank you for being here all right appreciate it thanks so much richard Remember, before you go, check out CBDFX.com for the best in organic, all-natural CBD products, both for you and your pets. Boost your wellness today and get 25% off your first order, plus get a free CBD bath bomb when you use code GENIUS at checkout. That's code G-E-N-I-U-S. Don't miss this special 25% off offer for Finding Genius listeners only at CBDFX.com. Offer expires August 31st, 2023. Feel the difference with CBDFX. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.